Part twelve of My School Days by E. Nesbitt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part twelve. When I began to write of the recollections of my childhood, I thought that all of those days which I remember could well be told in these twelve chapters. But the remembrances of that long ago time crowded thickly on me, and I wandered in the pleasant fields of memory. Where time ceases to be. So my twelfth chapter is reached, and finds me still only ten years old, and finds me, moreover, with not one tenth of the events of those ten years recorded. If only one's memory were as good for the events of yesterday, of last week, of last year! I have left myself no space to tell you of my adventures in Germany and France during the war of eighteen seventy, of my English school days, Of much that is not ever to be forgotten by me. Since I must needs choose one out of many remembrances, I choose my Kentish home, dearer to me than all. After many wanderings, my mother took a house at Halstead. The hall it was called, but the house itself did not lend itself to the pretensions of its name. A long, low, red brick house that might have been commonplace. But for the roses and ivy that clung to the front of it, and the rich, heavy jasmine that covered the side. There was a smooth lawn with chestnut trees round it, and a big garden, where flowers and fruit and vegetables grew together, as they should, without jealousy or class distinction. There were never such peonies as grew among our currant bushes, nor such apricots as hung among the leaves on the sunny south wall. From a laburnum tree in the corner of the lawn, we children slung an improvised hammock, and there I used to read and dream, and watch the swaying green gold of leaf and blossom. Our garden ran round three sides of a big pond. Perhaps it was true that the pond did not make the house more healthy; it certainly made it more interesting. Besides the raft, which was but a dull thing when the boys were away at school. There were nooks among the laburnums and lilacs that grew thickly round the pond, nooks where one could hide with one's favourite books, and be secure from the insistent and irritating demands so often made on one's time by one's elders. For grown-up people never thought of spoiling their clothes by penetrating the shrubbery. Here, on many a sunny day, have I lounged away the morning, stifling conscience with Mrs. Ewing's tales. And refusing to remember the tangle of untidiness in which I had left my room involved, for I had a little room of my own, a little little room, with a long low window and a window ledge, where bright plants in pots, encouraged by the western sun, withstood the intermittence of my attentions and blossomed profusely. My bookcase stood by this window, an old mahogany bookcase with a deep top drawer. That let down to form a writing table. Here I used to sit and write, verse, verse, always verse, and dream of the days when I should be a great poet, like Shakespeare or Christina Rossetti. Ah me, that day is long in coming, but I never doubted then that it would come. Here I wrote and dreamed, and never showed my verses or told my dreams for many a long month. But when I was fifteen, I ventured to show some verses to my mother. 
she showed them to Mr. Jap, then editor of Good Words and the Sunday Magazine. And never shall I forget the rapture of delight and of gratitude with which I received the news that my verses had been accepted. By and by they were printed, and I got a cheque for a guinea, a whole guinea, think of it. Now the day when I should be a poet seemed almost at hand, had I not had a poem printed. Besides the desk and the well-oiled key, that formed so excellent a defence against the boys, for what young poet could ever set down a line with the possibility of even the best-loved brothers looking over her shoulder? My little room had another feature, by terms a terror and a charm. A little trap-door in the ceiling led to that mysterious and delightful region between the roof and the beams, a dark passage leading all round the house, and leading to, oh, deep and abiding joy, to a little door that opened on the roof itself. This, until the higher powers discovered it, was a safer haven than even the shrubbery. Enclosed by four pointed roofs of tiles was a central space, safe, secluded, whence one could see the world around, oneself invisible, or at least unseen. Another trap-door, from the linen-closet by the boys' bedroom, afforded them an equal access to this same paradise. We kept a store of books and good things in the hollow of the roof, and many a pleasant picnic have we enjoyed there. Happy, vanished days, when to be on the roof and to eat tinned pineapple in secret constituted happiness. It was an uneventful, peaceful, pleasant time. The only really exciting thing was the presence, within a stone's throw of our house, of our landlady's son, who lived all alone in a little cottage standing in the fields. He was reported mad by the world, eccentric by his friends, but, as we found him, perfectly harmless. His one delusion, as far as I know, was that he was the rightful owner, nay, more, the rightful tenant of our house, and about once in six months he used to terrify the whole household by appearing with a carpet-bag at the front door and announcing that he had come to take possession. This used to alarm us all very much, because if a gentleman is eccentric enough to wish to take possession of another person's house, there is no knowing what he may be eccentric enough to do next. But he was always persuaded to go away peaceably, and I don't think we need have been so frightened. Once, when he was in the drawing-room, being persuaded by my mother, I peeped into the carpet-bag he had left in the hall. It contained three empty bottles that had held mixed pickles, a loaf of bread, and a barrister's wig and gown. Poor gentleman, I am afraid he was very eccentric indeed. Did I say that his existence was our only excitement? Is it possible that I have forgotten the dreadful day when my brother Alfred shot a fox? He drew me mysteriously aside one morning after breakfast. Daisy, he said, can you keep a secret? I could, I asseverated. He drew me into his room, locked the door, and then opening a cupboard, displayed the body of a big dog-fox. Where did you get it? I shot it. Oh, poor thing! Poor thing, indeed, repeated my brother indignantly. Don't you know no one would ever speak to me again if they knew I had shot a fox? 
"'Then why did you?' was the natural rejoinder. "'I didn't mean to. I was out this morning after wood-pigeons, and I saw something move in the bushes. I thought it was a rabbit, and I fired. And it was this. What shall I do with it?' "'Bury it. We can have a splendid funeral,' I said. "'You baby!' I was constantly forgetting that Alfred, at seventeen, was grown up, and that our old games no longer interested him. "'Well, stuff it, then.' You will hardly believe it, but we really did try to stuff that fox. My brother skinned it, skilfully enough, and we buried the body. We bought a shilling book on taxidermy. We spent many shillings on chemicals. We nailed the fox's skin to the inside of the cupboard door, and operated on it. My interest in the process was not lessened by the fact that I felt the fox, when stuffed, must be kept from all eyes but our own, hidden for ever in the depths of that cupboard, lest the world in general should find out that Alfred had shot a fox, and that I had been an accessory after the fact, and so should decline to ever speak to us again. But we never stuffed it. We never even succeeded in curing the skin, which, after a while, cried aloud for vengeance so unmistakably that we had to take it out and bury it secretly beside the body it had covered. Both interments were conducted in the very early morning, before even the maids were stirring, when the dew was grey on the grass, and the scent of the wet earth was sweet and fresh. When all the fox was buried, I breathed more freely. Perhaps no one would ever know, and people would go on, speaking to us. I remember after the burial of the skin, we went for a walk through the long wet grass, and came home with wet feet and happy hearts. Oh, those dewy mornings, the resurrection of light and life in the woods and fields! Would that it were possible for all children to live in the country, where they may drink in, consciously or unconsciously, the dear delights of green meadow and dappled woodland. The delight in green things growing, in the tender beauty of the evening light on grey pastures, the glorious splendour of the noonday sun on meadows golden with buttercups, the browns and purples of winter woodlands, this is a delight that grows with one's growth, a delight that age cannot wither nor custom stale, a delight that the years who take from us so much can never take away, can but intensify and make more keen and precious. Nature never did betray the heart that loved her. My book of memory lies open always, at the page where are the pictures of Kentish cherry orchards, field and farm, and gold-dim woodlands starred with primroses, light copses where the bluebells and windflowers grow. Yes, bluebells and windflowers to me and to all who love them. Botanists, who pull the poor pretty things to pieces, may call them hyacinths and anemones. And most plainly of all, among the dream pictures, shows our old garden at home. There is a grey-walled garden far away, from noise and smoke of cities, where the hours pass with soft wings among the happy flowers, and lovely leisure blossoms every day. There, tall and white, the sceptral lily blows, 
There grow the pansy pink and columbine, Brave hollyhocks and star-white jessamine, And the red glory of the royal rose. There greeny glow-worms gem the dusky lawn, The lime-trees breathe their fragrance to the night, Pink roses sleep and dream that they are white, Till they wake to colour with the dawn. There in the splendour of the sultry noon, The sunshine sleeps upon the garden bed, Where the white poppy droops a drowsy head, And dreams of kisses from the white full moon. And there, all day, my heart goes wandering, Because there, first, my heart began to know The glories of the summer and the snow, The loveliness of harvest and of spring. There may be fairer gardens, but I know There is no other garden half so dear, Because tis there, this many, many a year, The sacred sweet white flowers of memory grow. End of part twelve. End of My School Days by E. Nesbitt. Recording by Corrie Samuel.